Hello, I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your dactylic hexameter speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm really excited for this episode. We are going to talk about The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, which was originally published in 2011. And this book is a, a retelling of the Iliad as a modern novel. And I'm a real sucker for this sort of thing. One of my graduate degrees is in classics. That's uh, Greek and Roman culture and language. And the very first course that I took in that program was on Greek and Latin epics. And also I had done some coursework on Homer as an undergrad as well, and have really just been in love with these stories my whole life. There was definitely a time when I would have been all over this book the second it was published, but I missed this book and only learned about it because my wife read it and told me I should too. And so here we are. And I really enjoyed this book. So I'm excited to just jump in. So Take a deep breath and get ready for The Song of Achilles. Okay, the first thing we need to know about The Song of Achilles is that it is a retelling of the Iliad. The Iliad is an epic poem from ancient Greece that tells part of the story of the Trojan War, and we'll talk about that later. The Iliad, and also its companion piece, the Odyssey, are really the, the foundation of Western literature and are the earliest stories that we have. These poems are older than the oldest bits of the Bible, although the Bible contains stories about events that uh, take place before the Trojan War. They just were written much later. Now, that said, there are all sorts of scholarly problems with the date of composition and the authorship of these big poems that do not need to concern us here. What we should do before we go on, though, is talk very briefly about the story that the Iliad tells. Most people have heard of the Trojan War long before they read the Iliad, which is our longest story about the Trojan War. People know about the, the Trojan horse and Achilles' heel and Helen of Troy, whose face launched a thousand ships. But then people are generally surprised to discover that most of that stuff isn't actually in the Iliad, even though that's the poem about the Trojan War. The Trojan War lasts for 10 years, but the Iliad actually takes place over only about a month during the the final year of the war. And, and actually, most of the action takes place over only three days, really. And likewise, the, the Iliad does not end with the Trojan horse and the, the sack of Troy. So in short, the, the poem begins and ends with the war still raging. So even though the, the poem is called the Iliad, which means the poem about Ilion, and that's just another name for Troy, the story is really about one incident. And this incident is that time that Achilles, the best warrior in the Greek army, got really angry and decided to stop fighting. To, to go sulk in his tent might be one way of describing it. And as Achilles sulks for a few days, his comrades begin to lose the war, and many of them die. And this includes the death of Achilles' best friend, Patroclus. And it is his death, the, the death of Patroclus, that returns Achilles to the fray and, and, and then turns the tide of the war back in favor of the Greeks. And this is the story of the Song of Achilles, too. And indeed, I love this title. It's a better title than the Iliad, which is in fact not the Song of the Trojan War, which is really what that title means, but is actually the Song of Achilles and should perhaps be called the Achilliad. So right away, Miller is doing something interesting with her retelling, her, her reimagining of the very first story in our cultural tradition. 
Now, before we get into Miller's book, I, I want to make a note on pronunciations. Like these names are ancient Greek. They are difficult to pronounce for English speakers because English by default wants to put the stress on a different syllable than Greek does. On top of that, the names are mostly spelled the way Romans would have spelled them and not the way Greeks would have. And then again, many of them have been anglicized over the centuries. So by convention, many of the correct pronunciations in English aren't authentically Greek. On top of this, there are different conventions in America than there are in the rest of the Anglophone world. And so, in short, you will hear people pronounce these names in all sorts of different ways, and even among professional scholars. And this was certainly my experience in school. So, well, I will strive here on this episode to be internally consistent, you're likely to cringe at at least one of my pronunciation choices. And I hope you'll forgive me for that. Okay, so what Miller does here is turn the central story of the Iliad, the the wrath of Achilles, or, or the rage of Achilles, if you prefer, she turns this into a modern novel. And so this is going to be a character study, a, a sort of filling in of the blanks to give us a deeper and, and richer understanding of how and why this famous incident happened. And given the title, we might think that Achilles is going to be our principal character, our, our protagonist, but he's not. The Song of Achilles is the story told by Patroclus, and as I've just said, he dies in the Iliad. Uh, his death is the focal point of the poem. And so you can guess that this book is the story told, in fact, by the ghost of Patroclus. And this is not a conceit of Miller's, a, a borrowing from American Beauty or, or, or something like that, because Patroclus's ghost is actually a character in Book 23 of the Iliad, where he and Achilles even talk with each other. All right, so this is a first-person narrative by Patroclus, and it starts with Patroclus's unhappy childhood in Greece. His father, Minoidius, was a hero. He was one of the Argonauts who went on the quest for the Golden Fleece with, with Jason, another story people usually know. And this whole culture is a culture of warrior heroes, of, of men who rule others because of their prowess in battle. But from his earliest memories... Patroclus doesn't want anything to do with that culture. He, he certainly has no interest in fighting or, or war or even in even in sports, which for, for this culture are military training. Instead, Patroclus likes stories and music and learning. So I think really the shorthand way to, to say this is that he's a nerd. He's a, a geek in a society run by the jockiest of jocks. And in this way, Patroclus is a real stand-in for us as moderns who also would not fit into this Bronze Age warrior culture. I mean, not even a little bit, not one bit at all. And this is a great move because it gives us a narrator with whom we can sympathize. And this will be one of our major topics in the, the next segment as well. So Patroclus is not into any of this warrior stuff. And this is a huge strain on his relationship with his father, who views the kid as an unmanly disappointment. And this part of the story culminates when Patroclus is 11 and accidentally kills a, an, another boy who is the son of an important person in this heroic society. And this is a harrowing scene that pits Patroclus ag against a, a bully who essentially wants to steal his lunch money. And when Patroclus stands up for himself, he is horrified at the, the result when Patroclus is confronted with this killing, murder, maybe, 
He admits to it and, in consequence, is exiled to the home of another Greek hero king. And, of course, you've you've guessed it already, right? This is the the court of Achilles' father, Peleus, who also had been one of the the Argonauts. There's some uh, real Ender's Game stuff here as Patroclus tries to, to fit in with a veritable horde of other exiled boys whom Peleus is raising and who are, are led by Achilles, who is roughly at least the, the same age as Patroclus. And these two boys are drawn to each other immediately, and they become inseparable. And Achilles even bestows a formal title on Patroclus as his royal companion, And this means that they are roommates and super best friends. And as they go through puberty together, their friendship becomes more than that. They develop a a sexual attraction to one another. And this culminates, uh, in this part of the narrative anyway, with a hasty and, and really quite clumsy first kiss. Now, we need to talk about Achilles' mother, the nymph Thetis. And she's one of the, the best parts of the book. In our culture, we've appropriated the word nymph to have all sorts of incompatible and inconsistent meanings. But for the ancient Greeks, uh, a nymph was a minor water goddess, in, in this case, a sea goddess. And so Achilles is a demigod. He's half god, half human. One of the rules for demigods in this speculative world is that they have the potential to become full gods if they, you know, do enough awesome heroic stuff in the mortal world. And Thetis has big plans for Achilles, and she does not want anything to get in the way of those big plans. And of course, she discovers that Achilles and Patroclus have intense feelings for one another. And so she needs to cut Patroclus out of Achilles' life so that he won't get distracted from the business of becoming a hero and then becoming a god. And her solution is to send Achilles away from Patroclus, and this means sending him to the centaur Chiron, who sometimes works as a tutor to potential heroes, including Hercules, and, well, basically everyone you know from Greek mythology went to Chiron's centaur school. But Thetis' plan doesn't work, because Patroclus just follows Achilles to Chiron's school for heroes, and the two of them then are tutored together. And I love this part of the book, where Miller is fleshing out material that doesn't receive much detailed treatment in ancient Greek literature. In fact, I would not have minded if this had been the, the real focus of the book, if Miller had written a prequel to the Iliad rather than a retelling, a, a prequel focused on a sort of centaur Hogwarts And if anyone wants to write that book, I promise I will definitely read it. I mean, I will be first in line for that book. Okay, so at Centaur Hogwarts, Achilles and Patroclus learn all sorts of useful things, including hunting and and music, and for Patroclus, especially surgery and medicine. And they're at this school for several years, so they continue on in their adolescence, and their relationship comes to a full sexual maturity here. I'm not going to dwell on this part of the story because, well, as as you've heard me say before, I'm a bit prudish, but I will say that Miller writes all of this coming-of-age sexuality remarkably well. I'll blush if I repeat any of it, but it was beautifully written. So what happens next? Well, the Trojan War starts. Uh, Messengers come to Chiron's school to fetch Achilles and Patroclus, but from Patroclus's point of view, Achilles magically disappears. 
Patroclus goes in search of him, and we get a wonderful reimagining of a famous story about Achilles that post-dates Homer, that, that doesn't appear in the Iliad. And this is the story of Achilles going into hiding to uh, avoid the draft, essentially. There are a number of ancient versions of this story, though though most of them are lost. And so the, the one that we really have today is, is actually in Latin, not Greek. It's uh, from the poem The Achilleid by Statius. But we know that there were Athenian plays about this episode, and, and, and we know this story from art as well. It's on a lot of vase paintings. And that story is this. Thetis doesn't want Achilles to go to the Trojan War because there is a prophecy that if he goes, he will die. And in this book, it's not that Thetis wants Achilles to never fight. It's that she wants him to become a god. And he has to not die in combat for that to to happen. You're not going to get resurrected after a heroic death, right? You have to vanquish all of your foes and survive all of your combats. So Thetis' plan is to hide Achilles on a small island in the Aegean where a king oversees a sort of boarding school for aristocratic girls. Achilles pretends to be one of these girls, and he also fathers a child with the princess of this island until he is discovered by Odysseus, who only finds him out, only discovers his identity because of a clever trick, uh, the, the sort of thing Odysseus is known for, of course. Miller's version of this really focuses on Achilles' relationship with Didamia, whom he marries here, and how that affects his relationship with Patroclus. And it's, again, this is some really fantastic relationship, uh, really emotionally fraught relationship writing. All right, finally, we come to the Trojan War, to the episode in the Iliad. And I'm going to devote most of the next segment to the choices that Miller makes in adapting this material for her own purposes. So here, I'm just going to give a a bare bones summary. I mean, we're, we're running long in this segment as it is anyway. A Trojan priest of Apollo arrives at the Greek camp to ransom his daughter from Agamemnon, who is the the general of this army. At first, Agamemnon refuses, and so Apollo sends a plague until Agamemnon gives the girl back to her father, but now without any payment at all. And this upsets Agamemnon, who wants some type of compensation for his financial loss here, and so he takes a, a woman from Achilles— And naturally, Achilles protests at having his war booty just stolen from him. And this is the inciting incident of the Iliad, and it all happens basically on on the first page of that poem. It's this that causes Achilles and his soldiers to sit out the war for a few days, which then in turn causes things to go really, really bad for the Greeks. But Patroclus can't stand seeing his comrades die, and he begs Achilles to you know, stop being so mad to to end this feud with Agamemnon and to go out and, and fight. But Achilles won't, but he does allow Patroclus to put on his armor, to, to pretend to be Achilles, and to lead their soldiers into battle. Patroclus kills the, the second best Trojan soldier, a, a son of Zeus named Sarpedon, and he even takes on Hector, who is the best of the, the Trojan warriors, but Patroclus is killed by Hector. And the death of Patroclus, his best friend, his his lover, his his comrade for 15 years, sends Achilles into an entirely new rage, a, a grief-stricken anger, really at the whole universe. He takes on the Trojan army, and he kills Hector, and that seals the fate of Troy 
even though this means that he himself is not going to live to, to see Troy sacked. And this is something that he has known. This is an active choice that he has made here. And this is where the Iliad ends. But Miller continues her narrative to the end of the war. And so we see Paris. Uh, this is the, the Trojan prince who kidnapped Helen and started the war to begin with. We, we see Paris shoot Achilles and, and kill him. Achilles' son, Pyrrhus, arrives to replace him and, and to end the war. And Pyrrhus is creepy. He's been raised by Thetis, who feels that she made a mistake by letting Peleus raise Achilles. And he's really a monster. Uh, though really, maybe we should say that he's the hero Achilles never turned out to be. He's a, a full member of this society of warrior heroes. And, and, and we'll talk more about this in the next segment. At the end of the war, with Troy sacked, there is a, a question of what to do with the ashes of Achilles and Patroclus. Achilles had wanted to be buried with Patroclus, but the decision is really Pyrrhus's now. He's, he's the, the heir of Achilles, and he won't allow his demigod father to be buried with a servant. Odysseus intervenes here, and he gets Pyrrhus to agree to at least bury them together, so long as Patroclus's name doesn't appear on the tomb. Now, as I said at the beginning, this whole story is being narrated by Patroclus's ghost. And this is because in ancient Greek religion, your spirit can't go to the underworld unless you've received a proper burial. And this is not it. And so Patroclus's spirit, his, his ghost, is just stuck lording around this tomb while Achilles has moved on. Achilles has gone on to the underworld without Patroclus. One day, many years later, Thetis comes to the tomb to reflect on her son and the, the really tragic grief that has come to her family in the years since the Trojan War. And Patroclus says, hello. Thetis hates him, of course. As far as she is concerned, if it hadn't been for Patroclus, Achilles would have become a god and would live forever. She would still have her son if it weren't for Patroclus. They quarrel, uh, bicker really might be a better word. They, they, they bicker about who Achilles was and what he should be remembered for. And in her grief, Thetis asks Patroclus to tell her of the Achilles that he knew. Now, of course, we realize that the story we have been reading is the story that Patroclus tells to Thetis when she visits her son's grave. And at the end of the story, Thetis is moved by Patroclus's love of her son and by the depth of their intimacy, so moved by this that she gives Patroclus what he wants. She inscribes his name on the tomb and says, go, he waits for you. And he's released. He's able to go to the underworld now. And so the story ends with the two lovers reunited in the afterlife. So let's zip right along into our themes and motifs segment, where I really want to focus on how Miller alters and, and plays with the traditions that we have from Greek antiquity in order to, to make this story her own. I want to start, though, by musing a little bit about the, the modern popular reception of Homer. Most of us have read the Iliad and the Odyssey before, and, and I bet if we took a random sample, a sort of person on the street poll, I bet that we would find that the majority of people vastly prefer the Odyssey to the Iliad. Indeed, I, I bet that if you took a class in college that was an introduction to classical literature or like a core humanities great books course, you either only read the Odyssey or you read excerpts of both, but far fewer from the Iliad. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason why our culture prefers the Odyssey to the Iliad, and it has everything to do with the protagonists. 
We love Odysseus. He's clever and intelligent, and he seems rational to us. But most important, he loves his family and is motivated by that love. He's motivated by missing his home and his wife. Odysseus strikes us as a a good person. We find him relatable. But this is completely untrue of Achilles, and and really of everyone in the Iliad, with a, a very few exceptions. These guys are killers, and the Iliad is a poem of death. It's a poem about killers who are motivated by greed and glory. And the plot revolves around one of these killers taking his ball and and going home because somebody took some of his stuff and called him a bad name. And we find that largely unsympathetic, especially when we essentialize it like this. And so what Miller has done in her adaptation is to tell us the story of Achilles through the eyes of a character we can sympathize with and, and, and show us how we can sympathize with Achilles, too. But there is more to this than simply changing narrative perspective, and I I want to walk through some of the changes that Miller makes to Patroclus, Thetis, and Achilles in order to make both Achilles and Patroclus more palatable to the sensibilities of a culture that has gone through the First World War, through atomic bombs and genocides and endless wars at the hands of misguided politicians. Let's start with Patroclus. Miller's Patroclus is a sensitive, nerdy kid who suffers emotional abuse from his hyper-masculine father, who is concerned only with the acquisition of wealth and power and glory. Patroclus doesn't fit in with the other kids, and he's ostracized by them. And indeed, that's part of his father's disappointment. And when Patroclus does finally show courage, when he finally engages in the type of behavior that his father wants him to— He accidentally kills an important boy and is traumatized by this experience. What's more is his father doesn't praise him for his courage, the the courage he has finally shown, but instead disowns him and and sends him away. So it's a a no-win scenario for Patroclus. And we feel for this kid. We empathize with him, and we lament that he's had to experience this. More importantly, though, we sympathize with Patroclus. We like his values, and we dislike his father's. We prefer Patroclus's gentle nature with his love of music and games to his father's celebration of aggressive and violent behavior in the quest for glory and possessions. But this is a change that Miller has made. Homer does describe his Patroclus as gentle. We see him cooking and and serving in his capacity as good host to the various embassies to Achilles, We see him playing the lyre, and we see him caring deeply about his comrades. But Homer's Patroclus doesn't reject the warrior hero culture into which he was born. He has not foregone martial training in order to become a doctor like Miller's has. Homer's Patroclus is every bit as much of a killer as Achilles and Agamemnon, and he's almost as good at it. When he goes out to to fight after Achilles refuses to save their comrades— Homer describes him as godlike several times and extols his his skill in fighting. But Miller makes this a fluke. There is uh, something magical about Achilles' armor that aids Patroclus during this episode. And even still, he only accidentally kills Sarpedon, who's the, the son of Zeus, who is himself a demigod like Achilles. And this plays on our sympathies, of course. We see Patroclus as a victim not of Hector and the Trojans, but as a a victim of a whole society that values war and hoarded gold above food and song and cheer. And these are our values, right? And and I certainly am on Patroclus' side here. But I wonder how much this was really necessary, because this message, the, the idea that war is a racket, 
is in the Iliad too. It, it's in the character of Achilles. And this is part of the enduring richness of this poem. It is true that to our ear, Achilles is being a big baby who is angry about losing his toys. But this is because of the, the alienness of our two cultures. It's because we've all grown up in a world in which wars are waged between or, or among uh, states over matters of geopolitics. Even when we feel we are morally right to be waging a war, as the, the Anglophone world largely feels about the, the Second World War, for example, we, we find the idea of profiting off of that war abhorrent. Looting and, and pillaging are evil, and war profiteering, uh, making excessive riches off of the, the private production of munitions or medical supplies, is perhaps doubly evil to, to most of us. But in the Bronze Age, there really was no such thing as geopolitics or states, People went to war for loot, and because of this, the, the loot wasn't just about enriching yourself or uh, in, enriching your retainers, giving them rewards. It was how you measured your honor. Now, we, of course, we think of honor as a, a type of code of conduct, as, uh, as virtuous behavior, even when such behavior will bring us harm or you know, just put us at a, a disadvantage. But I have to say that this type of honor only exists in speculative fiction. This is not what actual honor has, has ever been in a human society, right? And so if, if when we hear the word honor, we think of wharf, then we've got honor wrong. The, the, the Greek word that we translate as honor is time. And, and really, we could more accurately translate it as quantifiable trinkets of esteem. And these trinkets, honor, if, if you just want to call it that, are how you know if you are valued by your peers or not. And this is what the Greek warriors have come to Troy for. They haven't come because of geopolitics. They've come to earn honor. They've come to earn quantifiable trinkets of esteem. And this whole culture is built around a set of rules for measuring teammate, for measuring honor, for deciding who gets which and how many of these trinkets. And so the poem begins with the leader of this expedition altering the rules in order to benefit himself at the expense of another king, another warrior. And essentially, what he's done is move the, the goalpost, right? Which is something I'm sure that we have all experienced in our own lives and been pretty mad about. Now, we as, as moderns tend to double down on our dislike of Achilles when in Book 9 he receives an embassy from Agamemnon offering to return the slave woman he took and even to, to pay him a sort of interest on her so that Achilles will actually end up with more honor, more trinkets, than he had yesterday. And Achilles refuses. And I want to zoom in on this scene in Homer and in Miller and compare them. And I'm just going to read from Homer here. And, and this is the Stanley Lombardo translation, which is my favorite, though you're probably more familiar with the, the Fagels or the, the Lattimore. So this is what Achilles says to, to Agamemnon's offer. I cannot imagine Agamemnon or any other Greek persuading me, not after the thanks I got for fighting this war, going up against the enemy day after day. It doesn't matter if you stay in camp or fight. In the end, everybody comes out the same. Coward and hero get the same reward. You die whether you slack off or work. And what do I have for all my suffering, constantly putting my life on the line? I brought in loot by the ton and handed it all over to Agamemnon, who hung back in camp, raking it in and distributing damn little. And Achilles goes on to say that if Agamemnon can just do this, if he can just change the, the goalpost, if he can just keep stuff and get away with it, then the whole system has no meaning. And that all the killing and all the dying has been for nothing. 
And he ends up rejecting the whole system and, and even the value of honor and glory to begin with. And here we should pause a moment to talk about Achilles' fate. Achilles is rare among mortals in knowing his fate ahead of time, but unique, I think anyway, in being given two options. If he stays and continues to fight the war, he will die, but he will be remembered forever. And of course, that's what ends up happening. And hey, it's been 3,000 years and we are indeed still talking about him. So that has come true. But if he leaves, if he stops fighting this war, he will live a long and happy life back in his homeland. And he knows this. And up to now, he has chosen glory because that's what his culture values. That's what he values, therefore. But now that he sees that this whole system is a racket, he decides he'd rather go home, live that long and happy life. He says that honor and glory are stupid and pointless, that fighting for these things is even more stupid and more pointless. He rejects this whole system, and instead, he chooses to value food and song and cheer above hoarded gold. This is an anti-war message right here in the heart of the story. This is the viewpoint that is in line with our own. And while this scene, it's known as the, the embassy to Achilles, by the way, and while this scene appears in Miller's book, this part of the conversation is gone. Instead, Achilles is merely angry. His pride has been wounded, and that is why he won't accept Agamemnon's offer. And this makes Achilles less sympathetic to us here, and it's a big part of what Miller is doing with her version of this story, asking us how Achilles got this way. In short, Miller is showing us a character who is forced to choose between being the person his lover wants him to be and being the person his mother wants him to be. And so on that note, let's go talk about Achilles' mother. Let's go talk about Thetis. Thetis is the, the real villain of this story. Her inhumanity is really played up in ways that satisfy us as speculative fiction fans much more than Homer's sort of endless frat party gods do. And indeed, the, the descriptions of her skin and her hair are downright creepy. Thetis is cold and, and distant from our point of view. We can't really know her because she's a different kind of being than us, though also because she hates our protagonist. Her central motivation is to protect her son and to make him a god, though for her these are very much the same thing, because what it means to be a god in this world is to be immortal, to be undying. And so in the end, Thetis is very much the same as Patroclus's own father. She wants Achilles to be a killing machine in order to achieve immortality. She also just wants him to avoid this war because she knows that he will die if he kills Hector. And this aspect of Thetis is emphasized in the character of Achilles' son, Pyrrhus, who has become the person Thetis always wanted Achilles to be, the person he would have been if it hadn't been for Patroclus. And that guy, Pyrrhus, is a monster, he's a brute and a, a savage. But this Thetis is quite different from Homer's. In the Iliad, Thetis is kind and loving and comforting. In fact, she has all the attributes that Patroclus does in The Song of Achilles. And two of my favorite scenes in the Iliad depend on Thetis's love. Uh, one of these is the, the moment when she comes to comfort Achilles when he collapses under the weight of his grief after Patroclus has died. And the other is, is when she goes and gets new armor for him, including the iconic shield of Achilles, which, which Miller leaves out here, though I think that was probably a good decision. I think that was probably for the best. Okay, all right. I have done a lot of comparing this adaptation of the Iliad to its source material. That's the, the lens through which I read the book, and it's, it's really shaped the way that I approached the book's themes as well. 
In the end, for me, what Miller does here comes down to the difference in the portrayal of Achilles himself. In the Iliad, he's an adult. He's a king among other kings and a warrior among other warriors in a war that has gone on for nine years. But in the Song of Achilles, he's a child, a a child who's been victimized by a culture devoted to war, and in particular, victimized by his parents. Indeed, we can take a step back from Achilles to, to think about Patroclus again, who has precisely the same story. While Patroclus's personality is not shaped by the, the martial culture of his father, or even of Peleus, or his training with Chiron, nonetheless, this culture takes his life. Indeed, Patroclus even gives up his life because he is a kind and loving person, because he could not stand to see his comrades slaughtered when he could go do something about it. But instead of living in a world at peace in which Patroclus could have been a real doctor or counselor, he's dead at 25 on a foreign shore because he just couldn't escape the long shadow of parents who think of their kids as trophies rather than people. Before we move on to the the final segment, I just want to read a a poem that is also an adaptation or an, an interpretation of the Iliad. The poem is called I Saw a Man This Morning, and it's by Patrick Shaw Stewart, who was a a soldier in the First World War. This is a poem about seeing the First World War through the lens of the Iliad. Shaw Stewart wrote this poem while he was on leave, and then later, of course, he lost his life in combat. I saw a man this morning who did not wish to die. I ask and cannot answer, if otherwise wish I. Fair broke the day this morning against the Dardanelles. The breeze blew soft, the morn's cheeks were cold as cold sea shells. But other shells were waiting across the Aegean Sea, shrapnel and high explosive, shells and hells for me. O hell of ships and cities, hell of men like me, fatal second Helen, why must I follow thee? Achilles came to Troyland, and I to Chersonese. He turned from wrath to battle, and I from three days' peace. Was it so hard, Achilles, so very hard to die? Thou knewest, and I know not, so much the happier I. I will go back this morning from Imbras over the sea. Stand in the trench, Achilles, flame-capped, and shout for me. And what I'd like you to think about with this Shaw Stewart poem is the way that two different cultures have interpreted or adapted the, the story of Achilles as it's presented in the Iliad. One from the the First World War, one from a world that is itself being torn apart by war, a a culture that is being shaken up by recognizing that war is a racket, and our culture, which is really the product of, in fact, the the shakeup of the First World War, but our culture that, that values peace and calm and civility and tranquility, and in fact takes that for granted to the extent that most of us live under the delusion uh, that we have not actually been fighting an endless war for 15 years in Afghanistan. And in fact, that the United States and many other countries in NATO and in the Western world are constantly at war, are at war more frequently than they are not, but that that is hidden from us. Okay, let's get to the, the strengths and weaknesses here. The Song of Achilles is a strong book. It's it's a beautiful book. Miller's prose is gorgeous and effortless. But most importantly, because this is a first-person narrative, she has a clear and distinct voice for Patroclus. As we're reading, we really believe that the ghost of Patroclus is telling us this story, and we come to feel for him, to, to pity, and to even mourn him. The whole book is a gem, but I'll just give one example from near the end of the book so you can get a sense of what this prose is like. 
The Greeks sail and take my hope with them. I cannot follow. I am tied to this earth where my ashes lie. I curl myself around the stone obelisk of this tomb. Perhaps it is cool to the touch, perhaps warm. I cannot tell. Achilles, it says, and nothing more. He has gone to the underworld, and I am here. I love this voice for Patroclus, but Miller breathes life into all her characters, even as it is the fact that we see them through Patroclus' eyes. Of course, the, the book is really about Achilles. It's right there in the title. And Miller does a lot to contextualize this hero, this protagonist, whom we as moderns have trouble empathizing with. For one, as we've already talked about, Achilles is the consequence of bad parenting and a bellicose culture. But Miller also shows us an Achilles who is just not quite human, who is other, almost alien. She really plays up his, his demigodness. Achilles is aloof, often unaware of other people the way that we are often unaware of ants or even the songbirds in our trees. We have to concentrate to notice them. And I think this is a brilliant touch to show us that Achilles is not just some dude with cultural mores we find distasteful, but to make him something fully other than we are. And Miller contrasts this with Odysseus. And of course, this is something we all do when we're reading these poems for the first time. And, and most of us love Odysseus and dislike Achilles. This is obvious. But Miller doubles down on it. And her Odysseus really comes to life. He reads like one of us trapped in this story, trapped in this bellicose culture that I think we would all really hate. And Miller gives us an Odysseus who is really something of a detective. He pays attention to details to deduce information from them, including listening to people's accents, which is something that almost mystifies Patroclus. Odysseus also is the lone character who is aware of the romantic relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, is not shy about acknowledging it, and doesn't care that it defies his cultural customs. On top of all of this, he loves his wife. And also, he's hilarious. He and uh, Diomedes have a real buddy cop thing going on where Diomedes is the straight man and Odysseus is the, the carefree joker who also is the one with all the brilliant insights. They get on each other's nerves, but they also respect each other deep down. And though neither of them would actually admit it, they feel fondly about each other. And if this does not get turned into a primetime cop show soon, I'm going to be pretty heartbroken. This was really probably my favorite part of the book. Now, look, the Song of Achilles is a love story, but I haven't talked much about that element of the book. But Miller writes this deftly, and it is a real strength. Love stories are hard to write. It's very, very difficult to show other people a romance in a way that feels true, because what matters isn't the objective fact of the, the actions and words when you're dating somebody or in a partnership, but the subjective feelings of the participants. So rather than show us this love story, Miller's Patroclus just tells us how he feels about Achilles. And this really works. And it is something that most fantasy writers don't do. They love showing, and it makes their love stories boring at best, but often just cringy and painful. And yes, I am looking at you, Patrick Rothfuss. All right, so I love this book. I am immensely grateful that my wife had me read it, and I really love the date that we went on to talk about it. But, of course, the book has one big weakness. It's not the Iliad. It's just one slice of it, one approach to exploring a handful of its characters. The Song of Achilles doesn't explore every theme the Iliad does. And how could it, really? The Iliad and the Odyssey are the foundation of Western literature. And just as all philosophy is merely a footnote to Plato, all our stories can be seen really as a footnote to Homer. 
So Miller leaves out a lot. Your favorite scenes might not be here, or they might be altered in a way that leaves you feeling a little bit disappointed about it. But in the end, I still think that you'll love this book just as much as I did, that you'll get as much joy out of this as I did. Well, that brings my review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the, the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on here. But as always, especially on what I've left out, and I left out a lot here, although I've listed the love story as one of the book's strengths, I haven't dwelt on any of the particulars. It's a kind of Trojan War, Romeo and Juliet, and I really enjoy this aspect of the story, but there is quite a bit to discuss about it. Uh, I'd be especially interested in talking about Briseis and the, the temptation that Patroclus feels to have a family with her. Before we close out, I do want to just say two more things about Homer. The first is that if you've never read Homer, you really should. And I do recommend the Stanley Lombardo translations. To me, they read more like a modern novel than most other translations. And so these are the translations that I use with students. They're accessible in ways that some of the other translations, as beautiful as they are, uh, just, just aren't. And the other thing is that you can hear me talk about another retelling of Homer over on our Star Trek podcast, Lower Decks. Michael Chabon wrote a, a standalone short in the, the Star Trek Discovery setting that is a, a retelling of Odysseus's time with Calypso. The episode is called Calypso, and although you probably can't watch it without CBS All Access, and actually if you're in the UK, I think you have trouble getting these short tracks at all, I think you can actually still listen to our episode and get some enjoyment out of it on your daily commute, even if you haven't seen the show itself. And my co-host on that podcast is Valerie Hoagland, and she also has a degree in classics. We even met in Latin class, and we just had a real blast with this episode. So I do hope you'll you'll check it out if you've been bitten by the Homer bug as we have. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we're going to be reading Zodiac by Neil Stevenson. And until then, remember, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.